And now, it's time for the only show that doesn't care about ratings, Witness Radio, with your host, Ryan Muniak. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Witness Radio, the only show that doesn't care about ratings because our sole purpose is to save souls. On purpose. Today, my guest is Mark Loy, one of the founders of Answers in Genesis. He's also the vice president of outreach here at the ministry. Mark, I just want to thank you for coming on to the show. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. And thank you, Ryan, and, and appreciate your heart for evangelism. And as you know, Answers in Genesis so well, if you just scratch us a little bit, you'll know underneath we're all about proclaiming the gospel. But uh, many people nowadays don't trust what the Bible says, including the gospel message, because they think that uh, the book of Genesis and the other books of the Bible are not uh, accurate or, or authoritative. So we thank you for, for your ministry. But uh, here at AIG, we are equipping Christians to uh, to defend the historicity of the book of Genesis, but all of the Bible. It just so happens that most of the attacks on the reliability of the Bible are directed at the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, we're also, as I said, very evangelistic. So as people come through our creation museum, yes, they'll get evidence that confirms what the Bible says about events of history, uh, but we also present the gospel. And I'm privileged as, as one of the founders to help build the creation museum. I also oversee our different uh, seminars that we hold all over the country. In fact, as you're uh, going to be airing this, we'll have just concluded one of our large conferences in, in California. We do about 300 teaching events outside of these four walls uh, every year. I also help produce the radio program uh, Answers uh, with Ken Ham, produce the newsletter, and uh, a number of things, including dealing with the media, as I am right now. Tell me a little bit more about the Answers Mega Conference that just happened. The conference that uh, we just uh, finished in California, our Answers Mega Conference, we flew in speakers from around the world to uh, go into depth uh, with uh, evidence that confirms the book of Genesis. Most of our seminars are just of a few hours in length, maybe four hours at a church on a Saturday, Sunday, or a Sunday, Monday. But the mega conference is four to five hours of intensive teaching. It's for those uh, folks who want to go more in depth uh, to discover the evidence that confirms the book of Genesis and also refutes evolution. The refuting evolution part is it's a part of what we do. It's not the main thing we do because we have a very uh, pro-Genesis message here. We're a very positive message. Yes, we do knock down the evolution belief system, but uh, we replace it with a very positive message that the Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation, and therefore the gospel message is true. But refuting evolution was important for me because I was an evolutionist growing up uh, as a product of the schools in Los Angeles, going to the science museums in, in L.A. and watching National Geographic television specials. Uh, I was an evolutionist. That's all I'd been taught, and it seemed logical. It, the teacher seemed very authoritative until I used, started to use my critical thinking skills when I was about 17 or 18 and questioned what I'd been taught in school about evolution. And it was an important uh, period for me because I was starting to have something of a crisis of faith. I was a relatively new Christian, but then I'm reading the book of Genesis and it seems to be in total conflict with what I'm learning in my public school, 
on television and, and visiting the, the museum. So I was wondering, you know, yes, I'm a Christian, but can I really trust God's Word uh, starting in Genesis? And so I, I, I started investigating this. Dr. Dwayne Gish, the famous creationist debater, came and spoke at our school in, uh, in, Los, in the Los Angeles area. And his one-hour talk just revolutionized my thinking about the question of origins. Where did I ultimately come from? And so um, I became a, a Bible-believing creationist when I was about uh, 18. And because I've seen so many young people growing up in our churches that uh, have not been equipped to deal with some of the anti-biblical attacks of the day, uh, creation, evolution, dinosaurs, why does God allow death and suffering? Because churches haven't been equipping their people, especially young people who are just evolutionized in their schools and, and through the media, uh, they're leaving the church because they think the Bible is not reliable. And uh, I have that passion now to equip young people to have answers that defend the book of Genesis because too many of our young people are walking away because they think the Bible is either irrelevant, uh, full of mistakes, and we may never see them again in a church. So I, I do cringe when, when people talk about the story of Noah and the ark. I cringe even more when I might walk into a Sunday school class and they've got this cartoonish ark drawn on the wall, you know, with the giraffes sticking their heads out the uh, out of the windows, making it look like it is just a fable or a story. And, and those types of messages you're sending to young people are, are not good ones. It could, my, could make them think, well, this account of Noah and the ark and, and Jonah and, and the great fish, I mean, are they true? I mean, science would say that they're not. Maybe the Bible is just a book of stories, and, and it's just like any other religious book that uh, we don't necessarily have to accept as as uh, as written. So yes, we we say that the uh, Book of Genesis is a historical account of origins, where we all come from. You brought up you know the the, the bathtub ark, and I know that we have a new project uh, in the works, the Ark Encounter. What's going on with that? Any major updates or anything like that? Yes, we're coming very close to announcing the actual construction of the ark. It's been held up by more than a year because of some permit permits we've had to uh, secure. But the Ark Encounter uh, is is a themed attraction that'll be 40 miles from our Creation Museum. Uh, the Ark Encounter will feature a full-size Noah's Ark, over 500 feet long. It will be built uh, along Interstate 75 uh, between uh, Cincinnati, Ohio and Lexington, Kentucky, right off of exit 154. It's a great exit there, just very convenient. 800 acres we have purchased. We've designed the ark. We've submitted all the necessary uh, permits and paid for those. And uh, we hope very soon to say that excavation and construction will start soon. Most of the money has already been raised for this project. And so it's just a matter now of getting that final permit and then uh, starting construction and, Lord willing, uh, open in the summer of 2016. This ark will be not just some kind of you know frivolous tourist attraction it's all about evangelism just as our creation museum is about sharing our faith because the ark after all was a a vessel of salvation for noah and his family and and the animals and uh, we will segue from that to present christ as our modern day ark of salvation yes we'll have plenty of exhibits and and wonderful uh, high-tech uh, displays, uh, animatronic 
uh, creatures. And so it'll be a fun experience, but uh, the most important thing is that people leave with an understanding that, that if they're not Christians, uh, that they're, they're lost and in need of, of salvation. Is that going to be it? Just just the ark with all the all the stuff inside, or is there going to be more to it? I mean, you've got eight hundred acres, you said. Yeah, the ark will be the centerpiece of of the ark encounter. Not surprisingly, uh, this is phase one that we op- will will be opening. It's about seventy three million dollars, and that includes um, you know the ark, but you know restaurants, uh, a, a zoo uh, nearby, a small zoo, because we'll have a parade of animals. Uh, they go into the ark, and then out of the ark and back into their into their petting zoo, and uh, massive amount of parking, and uh, yeah, some people wonder why you need 800 acres for a themed attraction, but uh, two reasons: one, you want to create a buffer uh, with your neighbors because you don't want something that's so contrary to the ark encounter message that might be right next door. You want to create some space between us and perhaps some future neighbors. But also the terrain is is gorgeous here, but it is kind of rolling hills. Mm -hmm. And so out of that 800 acres, I would say at least 200 of it is usable, meaning that it's relatively flat and you don't have to move a lot of dirt. And uh, this is first phase. There will be uh, several uh, other attractions that will come to the park. If the ARC encounter, the if the uh, full-size ARC is successful in drawing a certain number of people that will give us the income to continue to build on the park, yes, there should be several additions over, over the years, hence another reason we need about 800 acres. Let's move on to what everybody wants to know, answers to some of the most asked questions and some of the uh, common objections that you guys face day-to-day from atheists and evolutionists. What are, what are some of these questions, and, and what are, more importantly, what are the answers to those questions? I'm not a scientist. I'm not a theologian, so I can't give you deep answers to, uh, to questions about dinosaurs or carbon dating and topics like that. But you're right. Uh, if we go on talk show programs, and, and Ken Ham is on there frequently, and they open up the phone lines, uh, to uh, to callers, the same questions pop up time and time again. You can almost write them down ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And that's why those types of questions uh, are addressed in our museum, because we know what people are asking. And we've known that for years and years, and so we address them in the museum, from Cain's wife to carbon dating and so on. And that's why we have a book called The Answers Book, uh, the 27 most asked questions that people ask about the accuracy of the book of Genesis. And so the, the questions usually, uh, maybe the first question could be, don't dinosaurs disprove creation? Don't dinosaurs somehow prove evolution? In fact, dinosaurs are probably used by evolutionists more than any other topic to try to convince people of the evolutionary uh, belief that that uh, we've evolved over millions and millions of years, that dinosaurs perished 65 million years ago before uh, man appeared on the, on the scenes. Dinosaurs are almost like the icon of, uh, of the evolutionists, and that's clearly on display when you go to natural history museums like the, uh, the large museum in Chicago, the, the Field Museum, some very impressive dinosaur skeletons, but they're always presented in an evolutionary context. And science textbooks use dinosaurs. So here at the Creation Museum and through our different outreaches, we want to present the true history of the world, and we use dinosaurs as our icon, if you will. 
and and it's done through animatronic dinosaurs and dinosaur bones and that allosaur uh, skeleton. We believe, and this is something that I didn't accept. I used to believe in the evolutionary story that humans evolved millions of years after the dinosaurs disappeared, until I started looking at the evidence for myself and just didn't, you know, just didn't accept things at uh, at, at face value. That uh, dinosaurs are are actually explained by the Bible, where they came from, what happened to them. Uh, we think they were on Noah's Ark, and we'll we'll show that uh, or depict that in the in the Ark encounter. But uh, somehow, well, not somehow, but very deliberately, evolutionists have used uh, dinosaurs to to try to convince children that uh, that these massive creatures died out in evolutionary uh, uh, history. Other questions that are similarly related. Uh, to the uh, to the age of the dinosaurs would be you know isn't the earth millions or billions of years old that question will pop up wherever we go so we address that here head on and uh, we believe that I'll give you one example here as we continue to talk about dinosaurs um, you know a T-Rex bone was found in Montana a Tyrannosaurus Rex bone was found that had soft tissue still in that creature and blood vessels now that creature did not die out 65 million years ago. If you could open up the bone and and the and the blood vessels are actually elastic, you can, you know, they kind of return to their position after you move them. Now that creature was around relatively recently. That's powerful, compelling evidence that dinosaurs have been around uh, recently. Now we're not going to use the word proof on this, but that and all sorts of other evidences suggest that dinosaurs have been here in in the last few thousand years. And that includes drawings of them in South Africa or South America, uh, uh, petroglyphs uh, done by Indians in our west of dinosaur-like creatures looking like sauropods. We even have uh, dragon legends all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, including on the on the uh, flag of the country of Wales. You know, right next to England, it's a there's a dragon on there. It looks like a uh, a dinosaur. And so uh, I just encourage your listeners who have never been taught the other side of the story about dinosaurs to dig into it. And they'll find, I think, as I did when I was about 18 or so, that uh, the book of Genesis actually explains the true history of our origins and the, and the origins of all living things and that the evolutionary view is bankrupt scientifically and fraught with problems, including the supposed dating methods that they used to say dinosaurs uh, lived over 65 million years ago. Uh, carbon dating, by the way, has nothing to do with dating things to millions of years. So even evolutionists will say that. Now, there are other dating methods that supposedly give old ages, like rubidium, strontium, potassium, argon. But if you look at those dating methods, they already have built into their equations long ages. You can't, that, that's how those things work. But if you use your critical thinking ability and study these dating methods, you'll find, as our scientists here uh, continually say, that uh, they're, they're totally uh, unreliable. Even carbon dating is not all that reliable, even though it dates back only thousands of years. And that's a good point at this time, Ryan, to say that we have several Ph.D. scientists on our staff who have degrees from established universities like Brown University, which is an Ivy League school. And one of our scientists has a Ph.D. in biology from there. We have a, uh, an astronomer with a doctorate degree. Um, 
a geologist, uh, an astronomer. So there's a lot of brain power right down the corridor from me here that help us to make sure that we're accurate in our science. But these are all Bible-believing Christians who say that when you study science, science confirms what the Bible teaches in the book of Genesis and elsewhere. That's awesome. I wanted to go back real quick to that uh, Tyrannosaurus bone that uh, was found in Montana that's got, you know, the blood vessels or whatever you were saying. Now, I'm not a scientist either, so this question may be totally uh, stupid. But um, with that, uh, do you think there's a possibility of them uh, taking that and uh, going into a lab and cloning dinosaurs, and then all of a sudden we've got Jurassic Park 2 running, running amok in 2014? Well, I'll repeat, I'm not a scientist, and I'm not, uh, and I'm not even a theologian. I'm more of a bureaucrat here. But as I understand it, you can't clone an animal unless you have the egg of the female. And so without that, I don't think, because you have to insert into that egg of the female the, uh, the well, I guess you call it the DNA of, uh, of that, of that uh, Tyrannosaurus rex. So I think uh, Jurassic Park seems to be totally fictitious. Now, if you find a live dinosaur today, and who knows, it's possible. There's so many parts of Africa and Asia we've never We've never seen even there's even some stories from from Africa of a large dinosaur-like creature called Machili Mamembe, I think it's called. And so um, we don't believe that necessarily the dinosaurs are extinct, but we don't have proof that they that they're alive today. But there's some certainly some strong evidence they have been around in the last few hundred years. Wow, that's interesting. Well, let me move on to another question. Uh, a lot of people say that we're against evolution and they think we're uh, imbeciles. They think we're stupid because we don't believe in millions of years. One question is, why don't we believe in millions of years? And the second question is, how have you come to realize that we weren't, haven't been around for millions of years? I'm convinced that the Earth and the universe are young first and foremost because that's what the Bible teaches. If you add up all the genealogies in the Old Testament, and uh, and you know what Christ lived 2,000 uh, years ago, the time between the creation in Genesis to the time of Christ is 4,000 years. You really can't squeeze millions, much less billions of years, into the into the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a historical document, and there's very specific. Uh, um, uh, ages given for characters, you know, from from Adam through Abraham. I mean, if if you if you look at Genesis one uh, to eleven, you see about two thousand years between Adam and Abraham, and then the rest of the Old Testament gives about two thousand years from Adam to Christ. So, the Old Testament takes place in four thousand years. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's what, what I accept. And as I indicated earlier, what do I do then with those dating methods that say that dinosaurs uh, died out 65 million years ago? And I just encourage listeners to, to go to our website and, and look at these dating methods. First, they, they might want to deal with carbon dating to see the uh, uh, see what creationists will, will argue there. And the other dating methods that uh, give those supposed all ages are all very questionable. And um, and I, I can say with all confidence today, after studying this topic now for 
oh my goodness, about 40 years, that science confirms what the Bible teaches in Genesis, that the earth and universe are young, and uh, that humans did not evolve from some ape-like ancestor. We were created uh, by God and created in his, uh, in his image, and I, and I rejoice in those teachings. So you brought up a question uh, a while back about Cain getting his wife. The premise behind this question is Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and then later on it says Cain's wife. If Adam and Eve were the first humans, where did Cain get his wife? That is one of the most asked questions we get here, and it's used by skeptics to try to uh, try to stump us that we don't have an answer, because they'll say, "Well, that means that Cain must have married his sister." You know, if the Bible says that Adam and Eve were the first two, and then they had children, somewhere along the way, children would have to marry each other. Now, there wasn't a problem with that back then. The law against incest or close intermarriage came in at the time of Moses, time of Exodus. And the reason there would be this prohibition of close relatives marrying had everything to do with what are called mutations in the genes, mistakes that all of us have in our genetic makeup. And if close relatives married, if I had the same mistake in my gene as a close relative, then our offspring might have some kind of a deformity. But Adam and Eve were created perfect, and their children were very close to perfection. So close relatives, back in the time of the first chapters of Genesis, could marry and not have a problem with their offspring having genetic uh, deformities, because they were close to being you know, pure in terms of genetics. But over time, as the mutations built up in people's genetic makeup, close relatives marrying could create problems in their uh, in their offspring with deformities and other things. So now what about the, uh, you know, you see in the Smithsonian and all the science books depictions of ape men, you know, going from the ape up to the man and whatever in between. Well, that was a big problem for me as a teen growing up. I thought, for example, that Neanderthal man, who unfortunately is still in some textbooks today and, uh, and shouldn't, was um, uh, proof that we had evolved from an ape-like ancestor. See, Neanderthal man, the bones were found in, in Germany of, uh, of a skeleton that was kind of stooped over. And so evolutionists would say, well, this creature uh, looks human, but is stooped over, kind of hunched over, kind of like an ape. So it must have been halfway, roughly halfway between an, an ape and, and a human. And I accepted that as proof of, of evolution till I found out later that Neanderthal man was stooped over because he had a, a bone disease or a vitamin deficiency, some, something like that. I'm a little vague with the, with the science. But the more I studied these so-called ape men like Neanderthal man and then Lucy, which is probably the uh, exhibit A now that evolutionists use to try to s prove that we evolved from some ape-like uh, creature, which we dismiss here in our museum. We've got a wonderful display that refutes Lucy. The more I looked into these ape men, they were either all ape or all human and nothing, uh, nothing in between. And that's not what you'll hear uh, uh, in your cl typical science classroom or through the media or through uh, uh, certain museums. But, I, again, I encourage listeners, as, I, as I've done, I think, a couple of times now, use your critical thinking skills. There's often a second interpretation of the evidence. Evidence, you know, bones just don't speak in and of themselves. They have to be interpreted. 
And I think the best interpretation is using the Bible as my uh, my eyeglasses, if you will. As I look at the evidence, I look look at the evidence through biblical glasses, and the evidence uh, is is consistent with what the Bible teaches about the origins of uh, of uh, humankind. I encourage our people, if they your people, if they have questions about these so-called ape men, they go to our website of AnswersInGenesis.org, and they can type in some keywords like Lucy or Neanderthal or Homo erectus, type that in there, you'll get some articles from some PhD scientists that I think will confirm them in their faith that, you know, we were created in the image of God, as Genesis 1 says, and not from some uh, some ape-like uh, creature in our ancestry. You, as a, as a Christian, say that God created the earth and it was perfect, but there's death and suffering. Where did the death and suffering come from? Why Why do you say that God created everything perfect when we have death and suffering? Since the 9-11 tragedy some 13 years ago, that may be, if it's not the most asked question we get here at the ministry, it might be number two or number three. And that is, if there's a God, if there's this all-powerful God, uh, why is there so much death and suffering in this world? Well, we go back to the book of Genesis, where it was a perfect world until we had the rebellion of, of, of Adam and, and Eve into sin, and everything changed in the universe at that at that point. And we had the entrance of, of death. I mean, it, in Genesis chapter 3, it said that Adam would eventually die. We have death and suffering in the world today because of the rebellion of humankind against a holy creator. Uh, we shouldn't be shaking our fist at him. We should be looking at our, at our own sin. And we, we see uh, death all around us. Even, in a, in, even we see beauty in the world today. We have remnants of that wonderful creation as we look at... Uh, just the, the the wonderful handiwork of God uh, throughout uh, throughout our, our our planet, but death and suffering entered right there at Genesis chapter three, fifteen, and we see animals killing each other. We have diseases like uh, cancer. These things did not exist in in a perfect world, but thank goodness one day our world will be restored, as uh, the Book of Revelation teaches. And uh, meanwhile, God has given us the mental capacity to deal with some of these horrible diseases like cancer. I've got a, a friend I was on the phone with just about 45 minutes ago who, uh, you know, years ago might have just passed away because of the lack of, uh, of uh, medical understanding of cancer and all the technologies that, uh, that are being, uh, being produced. So, um, yeah, death and suffering is, and cancer and diseases are a result of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. I know that was supposed to be the last question, but it made me think of one more. And this, I think, is going to be the most important. You talked about sin as a result of death and suffering. It sounds like the world is hopeless because of this, because of sin. What can someone do? What are your words to, to people who are looking for hope? Well, for the non-Christian, this world is hopeless. If, if there's no meaning or purpose in life, that they're just an accident, an evolutionary accident, in a universe that's billions of years old, I could see why a non-Christian would be struggling over, you know, what is what is the meaning and purpose in life. But for the Christian, we rejoice in a future hope of a restoration of the uh, of uh, of all things and a, and a relationship with Christ that will last through uh, eternity. Uh, evolution is the scientific justification for people who wish that there is no God. And, but it's, it's just a worldview, and indeed in a, a religion, Ryan, it's a, it's a religion without meaning or purpose in life. And 
we're, we use this question of death and suffering to present the, uh, the gospel message of why Christ came uh, to earth to, uh, you know, he, all of us are still going to be sinners. Even when we become Christians, we're going to have uh, physical ailments. But if we have placed our trust in Christ and we're going to spend eternity with him in a perfect place where we don't have death and suffering anymore, where everything will be in perfect uh, harmony. And that's the message that we present at the Creation Museum uh, through the Future Ark Encounter, through our website. Everything points to the, to the gospel. And as we answer these questions about death and suffering, dinosaurs, carbon dating, Cain's wife, people are more inclined to listen to what, uh, what's written in the, uh, in the New Testament of Christ coming to die for us and uh, raise again from the, uh, from the dead. That's the hopeful message we present here as opposed to the hopeless message that's presented in, in the secular world. Thank you again, Mark, for being on the show. Just give a, a quick recap of, of who you are, what you do for the ministry, and uh, where they can uh, find out more information. Your listeners can go to AnswersInGenesis.org for a variety of uh, uh, answers to their their questions. I'm privileged to be one of the founders with uh, Ken Ham and Mike Zovath of Answers in Genesis and our Creation Museum. And uh, part of my responsibilities include uh, outreach, overseeing the uh, the different teaching seminars we do around the country and around the world, uh, help produce the radio program, the newsletter, and do a lot of work with uh, media. So a little bit of a little bit of everything at Answers in Genesis. Thank you again. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And until next time, the fields are ripe for the harvest. So what are you waiting for? Get out there and share your faith. May God bless you. Ratings. We don't need no stupid ratings. You're listening to Witness Radio with Ryan Muriak. <coughs> but we like Ryan. <coughs> we do! Just go to witnesstalkradio.org. <laughs>